Welcome to this final program in our series, Maine, The Way Life Could Be. I'm Jim Campbell. And I'm Amy Brown. Before we started this series, we invited anyone interested to join us on a Zoom call and tell us what they thought the biggest challenges are that Maine will be facing in the lifetimes of those alive today. We had a great response, and the programs broadcast over the past year addressed many of the key issues that people on that call identified. Climate change, affordable housing, affordable health care, agriculture, the demographics of Maine and what that may portend for the future, challenges to our infrastructure, and more. As we wind up the series today, we wanted to take a quick look at some issues that we didn't cover this year, and also to hear some additional thoughts from one of the guests on a previous show. Some of the folks on that initial call said that they were concerned about the future of traditional Maine jobs, especially on the coast. We've touched on that subject a bit in terms of the impacts of climate change, But we want to urge you to check out the award-winning Coastal Conversations program here on WERU on the fourth Friday of every month at 4 p.m. Host Natalie Springle of UMaine Sea Grant covers, quote, people who live, work, and play on the Maine coast. Another issue mentioned by listeners is tribal sovereignty. WERU is fortunate to have Donna Loring, Penobscot Nation elder, former legislative representative, and author, hosting Wabanaki Windows, where she's been focusing on that very topic with other Indigenous experts for several months. This is Donna Loring. Why is this such an important issue that you've devoted so much time and attention to it? Sovereignty is something that you will not get the same answer from everybody. People view it differently. Tribal government views it very differently from state government. I'm trying to kind of unpeel the layers of sovereignty. I figured the best way to do it was from the uh, historical view. For the first, uh, I think it's like maybe three or four shows, I started looking at the history of sovereignty. thought I'd start with uh, Professor Harold Prince and Professor Colin Calloway from Dartmouth. Colin Calloway's written a lot of books on that, and that series really is the foundation of understanding everything. The whole thing, all of the treaties and everything else, uh, had to do with getting the land away from, from the tribes. Looking at today, and I know you're being really thorough to kind of lay out a lot of these treaties and agreements that were broken and how, what the historical context is of those things. As we're looking at sovereignty, as all of that has moved forward to today, one of the primary things is the water rights issue. Is that the primary thing? Are there other things around Mm -hmm. tribal sovereignty that are playing out in Maine today that people should be aware of? All of these things go back to the foundation of these treaties and the history. And you can't get away from it because, first of all, for there to be any kind of relationship right now between the state of Maine and the tribes, there has to be trust. And there's no trust. And there's a really good reason for that. And the reason for that is how the the treaties were handled. The reason for those treaties And the aggressive nature of Maine as far as controlling the tribes and taking away their resources. And that continues. And whatever you river or however you want to look at it, courts, uh, it's all the same to me. And that's just my opinion that no matter what happens, Maine has to recognize what is done to the tribes 
and how it's treated the tribes and then start from square one, regardless of these treaties, from square one to reach some sort of uh, compromise on an equal basis of sovereignty. Are there ways in which those battles are being fought right now legislatively or through the courts? Well, both of those legislation and the courts are all controlled by the state. So the the only way we can uh, address that in a fair way is is by educating the general public and our communities. And uh, that's the best way we can do it. And we can educate uh, in the school systems and in the law school and in the legislature. Speaking of the school system, since we have you here, I believe you were instrumental in helping get that law passed to get a component in the history education to make sure they knew the tribal history. Is that is that right? I actually wrote the law, yes. Uh, okay. And, and uh, got, it, got it passed, yeah. So what is your thought about the recent news, which probably isn't news to you, it was news to me when I read it. I don't have any kids in school, that the schools are doing a very poor job of actually implementing that after all these years. They've never implemented it in some places, or they do a sort of a passing shot at it and then move on to other things in other places. When I wrote the law and we got it passed, I knew that all the schools would not be implementing it. And my thought was if one school implemented it and one class got taught, that's more than what was happening. Now, not to say that I'm happy with the progress, but I am happy now that we have an education uh, department with uh, Commissioner uh, Pender that's really stepping up to the plate here, helping the, the law to be implemented. So there's a lot there, and I hope listeners realize how fortunate we are to have you in the most recent programs, it's been Professor Prinz and Professor Ranko, Darren Ranko from University of Maine. So people are basically getting sort of a college-level course with people who are from the tribes themselves talking about tribal sovereignty. What are you planning on in your next few programs? Do you have a sense of yes. what topics mm-hmm. you'll be talking about? I was going to do a second book after my Shadows of the Eagle. In researching that book, I came across some transcripts. They were in 1942 during the war. It was a legislative hearing, and they were researching uh, what they owed the tribes and why they owed them money or what kind of condition the tribes were in and how much uh, money the state was paying to the to the tribes and why, and if, in fact, they could cut down on what they were paying. According to the transcripts, they created this committee and was chaired by a uh, an attorney. This committee in- interviewed the uh, commissioner of health and welfare that also had the control over the tribes at the time, as well as the attorney general, and then a guy named uh, Ralph Proctor, who they hired to do some research. So there were like three transcripts, pretty full, with specific language about how they were going to approach cutting down on tribal population and disseminating the tribal communities into the larger community. Basically, what they were talking about, and I mince no words about it, is genocide. It's just getting rid of those tribal communities and how to do it. They say some pretty jaw-dropping things. So my next programs will be on those transcripts. With all of that history and all of the research that you're doing, 
What do you see, if you see anything, lying ahead? Are you hopeful? Do you have a sense that things are moving in one way or another? Or is it, from your perspective, uh, too early to look forward? Oh, it's never too early to look forward. You always have to. You can't lose hope either. You just keep pushing and pushing. We don't have the luxury of stopping. If we stop, we're dead. We have to continue. I'm hoping there'll be a lot of progress made. As I've said before, I I hope it's within my lifetime. That was Donna Loring, Penobscot Tribal Elder and former council member. She represented the Penobscot Nation in the state legislature for over a decade and is a former senior advisor on tribal affairs to Governor Mills. Donna is the author of In the Shadow of the Eagle, a tribal representative in Maine. You can catch up on her Wabanaki Window series on tribal sovereignty on the WERU archives at weru.org, and you can hear her new shows on the fourth Tuesday of every month at 4 p.m. Politics, of course, are important in almost all of the topics we've covered in the series housing or health care or climate change or almost any other part of our civic life depends in large part on how our political system chooses to deal with those topics. We thought we'd try to take a brief look at what politics in the state might look like going forward, so we called University of Maine political science professor, researcher, and author Amy Freed. From an overall big picture perspective, which is one of the perspectives you look at, what does the future in Maine look like to you? Wow, that is a great question and a really big question. Just to think of what's coming down the pike more generally for everyone is we're all really going to have to deal with the impacts of climate change. We've been this lovely place for tourists to come, particularly in the summer. You know, people will say it's an air-conditioned vacation. Well, it's not so air-conditioned anymore, I don't think. You know, it can get pretty hot in the summer. Obviously, there'll be a lot of impacts on forestry, on on the oceans. I think it, it's going to be a real challenge. And that, of course, will continue to be a, a big political and policy challenge, how to approach that and what to do. More generally, beyond even just that particular issue, what I've seen in the 25 years since I've lived in Maine is Maine politics get more nationalized. Maine used to feel more like a place apart where there was a lot of civility and good conversations between people, certain amount of mutual respect, even if people didn't agree with each other. And a lot of the negative partisanship and polarization that's been a national tendency has really creeped into Maine. And I think even in the last campaign, the use of some themes that were really more national themes that in some ways didn't really fit Maine very well. For example, an education, this whole thing about what kids were being taught in school and wokeism or whatever, you know, and the with the implication that local school boards and local people didn't have control over what was being taught in, in the schools when that's, you know, we have such a strong, strong tradition of uh, local control in Maine. I just don't think that works for anybody who really has ever been involved in education 
whether they're a teacher or whether they've had kids in the schools. Certainly the state has some role in public K through 12 education. But on the other hand, an awful lot of it really is very local. If people want to change what's going on in their schools, they can show up to school board meetings. They can have a role. Like even when we look at the, the book, the question of certain books being included in libraries. Well, some of the school districts that had that in front of them voted to include books, talking about ones that are have themes, LGBTQ themes, and some voted against it. So <laughs> it really wasn't something that the state decides. It's really something that, that happens locally. And I think if we're going to talk about where Maine is going future, I think Mainers want to hold on to that. I think Maine, Mainers do like the level of local control that exists. It is closer to the people and you can have more impact there. So I do think that's going to continue. I don't think those attacks really did much, but still it was a, you know, kind of a sign of what was happening in our politics that there was this view that you could just kind of pull in what are national issues or national attacks and perhaps they would work. Do you think that that might expand going forward or do you think that it's possible, not just it's possible, but it's likely that Maine might continue on more as a place apart? Right. I, I think it is possible that people will pull back from it because it, I don't think it was very effective. Do you think that the voting characteristics of younger people will change the way that Maine runs its business over coming years. For example, there was an article today in, I think in the Washington Post that pointed out that those over 65 voted more heavily for Republicans in this past election. And those of the generation Z, the, the very young voters, in fact, went the other way. Do you think that the demographic shift that will be taking place. We're the oldest state in the union. And that means that while we will for a while continue to have more older people, there are going to be more younger people coming into more prominent roles in the state and politically. And we've also seen that recently, I think for the first time in quite a long time, Maine has actually had an increase in population, not because of more births and deaths, but because of people moving into the state during COVID, but also given the climate situation in other parts of the country. So looking ahead, not just politically, but anyway, how do you think that might affect life in Maine? I think, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it'll be interesting to see if we retain some of the people who moved to the state during the pandemic, I, I would expect at least some of them will, will stay, will decide they want to settle down here really for good. Well, some might get chased away from difficult winters. <laughs> it, it is a good place to live in a lot of ways. So I, I think, you know, we'll retain some of those folks. Also, some of the policies and trying to help with paying off student loans that the state has put into place with expanding opportunity. Maine might have a little bit of a marginal impact that way. But younger people tend to be entrepreneurial in a way that older people aren't. I mean, usually 
you're talking about people going out at some point and starting a business. They're not going to do it when they're in their 60s. They're more likely to do it when they're you know, younger. Maybe they work for a while and put together some savings in order to do it. We would expect to see a lot of entrepreneurial energy that way. But also when it comes to politics, it is, it's really well established that what affects you when you're young and your take on politics when you're young actually tends to last for a really long time. So we had generations who lived through the New Deal or lived through World War II who were very involved in politics and who really did believe there was a place for the government to try to help people. People who grew up in the Reagan years and liked Reagan, who were young at that time when he was, you know, kind of popular, then they tended to stay more conservative. And right now, young people are really not supportive of the direction of the Republican Party, at least the kind of Trumpy Republican Party. They don't like the cult, the way they're wielding culture war issues. They're very pro abortion rights, very pro LGBTQ rights. They really care a lot about climate change. They like the idea of things like help for raising children in various ways, policies that help families. I think they're probably going to stay <laughs> with those views by and large. It's, there's not so much change with aging. It's more when you were born and what, and what you grew up with that has the biggest impact on, on people's politics. I know you said not necessarily politics, but just looking the other day at the 2020 exit polls, so the only age group that didn't vote for Susan Collins were voters 18 to 29. And only 35% of them voted for Collins, at least according to the exit polls. We already are seeing some differences there within the state. There could be, going forward, real impact from younger voters. Of course, we don't know, again, as I said, how many people who moved here are going to stay here. Yes, I don't know how many people in that younger group are staying in Maine or some of them were college students who now have like moved to Boston or somewhere else to, to start their careers. You're listening to Maine, The Way Life Could Be on Community Radio WERUFM. I'm Amy Brown here with co-host Jim Campbell. And in this segment, we are speaking with Amy Freed, professor of political science at the University of Maine, Bangor Daily News columnist and author. With the results of the election in Maine, and Rachel Talbot Ross has become the Speaker of the House, there was no real red wave here. What are things that you think are realistically likely to happen in the next couple of years with Maine looking the way it does politically? Well, uh, I think that there's going to be some movement towards some more progressive policies, but on the other hand, Janet Mills is, you know, center left. That's how I would characterize her. Some people might call her just a straight out centrist, but I'd call her center left. And but she definitely is interested in keeping that center part of the center left. So, you know, for example, what will she do when it comes to gun measures? She's really wanted to avoid moving towards policies that probably are actually pretty popular overall. Um, but there's also a very strong anti-gun control constituency within Maine. And she's tended to size with more business interests versus 
progressive interest on something like family and medical leave, even though I, I think that given her own experience with helping to raise four children, you know, her stepchildren, that she very much appreciates as an individual and probably thinks it is really important, but she still wants to keep that balance there from her point of view. The next two years, I think, are going to be kind of telling in how that gets worked out. So I don't exactly know what's going to happen, uh, obviously, but I, I think there's definitely some potential for more progressive policy. But Governor Mills also, I think, wants to keep the Democratic Party from maybe moving to the point of view that that she would feel like it would be maybe in conflict with some other important interests and constituencies in the state. We are blue state on the presidential level. Yeah, of course, second district did vote for Trump twice. But if you look at the state overall, there hasn't been a candidate who won, a Republican candidate who won the state since 1988 statewide, George H.W. Bush. That's the last time a Republican won statewide. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean we're deep blue in, in the way some other states are. It's at least a little bit purple. The Republican Party tends to like really embrace these kinds of culture war sorts of things. I think they're going to be in trouble because although there's definitely, you know, this Christian right in the in the state as well, they haven't really won anything for a very long time. I mean, we passed marriage equality 10 years ago before the Supreme Court legalized marriage equality. People voted for that. I think it's not just the fact that we're a pretty secular state. Actually, we're like the most secular state in the country. It's really like a more New England, leave me alone, let me do what I want, libertarian kind of thing. It's not left. It's more just let people live the way they want to live. I just don't think that stuff is going to come off well at all if, if that's what the Republican Party decides to pursue. There was a piece in the Press Herald a week or two ago where, you know, some of the GOP leaders said we, we should have been doing more speaking about these culture war issues. Well, that'll help them in certain areas to win maybe certain, certain state legislative seats, but it's not going to help them in a lot of places. And it, I don't think it works at all statewide. It seems like culture wars work better where you don't know your neighbors. It's easier to other people that you don't know. And maybe part of what works in places like Maine is that it's a small town and we're all going to the same stores or people are bringing their kids to the same sporting events or whatever. And that's what takes away some of that. One of the things that is a problem for Maine and is a problem all over the country, really, is who's going to do the the work that needs to be done. Walk down a main street in any town in, in my part of the world, there's now hiring signs everywhere. It's no surprise that the number, for example, of people in schools, schools are being turned into senior living centers here and there around the state. I've passed three or four of them. What are you thinking about that? We're the oldest state I wonder what your thought is about whether that's likely to change in any way. Yeah, I think it is hard to change that. On the other hand, we have had that in-migration, which is good. Maine has to really do more to bring in more people. I mean, the other the difficulty is kind of housing supply is also a problem. 
and housing mm. affordability is a problem to attract people to the state as a really nice place to live. There have been some programs the state has set up at various times. I think some of them got put on hold with COVID to do different kinds of like weekend events for people who are interested in moving to the state. Immigrants overall are good if we could resettle more immigrants. Immigrants tend to be people who are willing to take risks because they've left someplace. Of course, they've left places because they were unsafe, but they often, but they were still the ones who were willing to take that risk to, to just change their lives completely. And often they're younger, they may have bigger families. The other side of that is a lot of the people who are immigrants don't look like the average Mainer. They're people of color. Younger Americans in general are less white than older Americans. The diversity increases the younger the group that you're looking at. Maine has to be, therefore, you know, welcoming to, to all kinds of different people. Jim Tierney, the former Maine attorney general, he's talked about that a lot over the years, about the need to have greater diversity in the state as a way to bring in younger people. And then that starts filling a lot of those positions. I mean, the reason why our labor force participation is kind of a little bit lagging despite low unemployment is, is because now it's an older population. I believe that when we spoke with the main demographer, or maybe it was in something, one of the reports that she had published, it stated pretty clearly that Maine needs more immigrants that to benefit from having the younger population, just to keep jo- jobs filled as the demographics get older here and more people are aging out of working and into retirement, that we're not going to be able to make it unless we have some more immigrants. The birth rates are just not high enough in the state among the people who are living here now. And you can't start now. Like, if you start now having the babies, it's going to be a long time. So they're <laughs> I'm certainly not going to start now. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's, I think that's that's something that has to happen. If someone is some kind of asylum seeker or refugee, I don't think they can work for a while, right? So changing some of the laws so that people can work, getting people connected, finding ways to connect people into jobs or into training so that then they can take certain jobs like looking forward, the office remains future or whatever it's called, um, are thinking about those big picture things. Is there anything that we haven't asked you about that you want to add? I guess I'll just say that when it comes to things like voting rules, Maine has been doing really well. I'm not sure what else there is to do as part of our agenda, but that's something that is uh, something to celebrate when there's all of this election denial and such that we we do have a very robust voting system that people can easily vote. The only the only thing I'd ask is they find a better way to finish up the ranked choice tallies a little faster. <laughs> we could have been in the position where like people were waiting on Maine to figure out who controlled the house or we could in the future even be in a position where people were trying to figure out what happened in the second district to find out who was elected president. I think we should, you know, be able to to uh, to find whatever it is that we need to do um, to to make that go a little faster. Although um, I think, you know, the system the system worked, but you know, it, we it just would be. That's all I ask. That was UMaine political science professor Amy Freed 
Looking ahead at how politics may develop in the coming decades here in Maine, Fried's most recent book is At War with Government, How Conservatives Weaponize Distrust from Goldwater to Trump, published in 2021. She's currently in the process of finishing a new book on New England politics, slated for publication next year. Professor Fried also writes a biweekly column in the Bangor Daily News. This is Maine, the way life could be here on Community Radio, WERU-FM. Our final conversation on this, our final program in the series, is with a guest who appeared on an earlier program that looked at affordable health care in Maine, now and in the future. There have been some legislative changes at the federal level that could affect health care costs. For example, beginning in 2025, Medicare will be allowed to negotiate drug prices with pharmaceutical companies. We talked with Dr. Phil Caper, who had a patient practice for many years and is also a healthcare policy analyst and advocate. We wanted to see if he thought any of those changes might make a difference in access to affordable health care here in Maine. Here are his thoughts. Are you feeling any more optimistic now about access to medical care than you were even a few months ago? I take a long view since I've been doing this for 50 years and things are lots worse than when I started. But the thing that gives me hope is that the current system is structured to crash and burn. Part of my advocacy work involves sitting through hearings in the legislature. And a few months ago, when uh, Maine Health Care, Maine Medical Center, threatened to pull out of the Anthem Network, there was a, a six-hour-long hearing, which I sat through. And after this long hearing, where I heard Maine Health testify, I heard Anthem testify, I heard the hospital association, so on and so forth, and lots of Mainers who would be affected by this tactic. And at the end of it, I just sat down, what's the bottom line in what all I've just heard? And the bottom line was, gee, everybody was just doing their job. That's the problem. It's not that people are doing things they're not supposed to. They're just doing their job. This is something that is structural. It's built into the system. Everybody thinks they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And that's what makes it so hard to change. When you put the fox in charge of the chicken coop, it doesn't make much sense to get mad at the fox when the chickens start disappearing. And the same is true with the healthcare system. When the incentives for many of the players conflict with one another, you're going to get conflict. And people said that this idea of Maine Health and Maine Medical Center pulling out of Anthem was market failure. Not market failure. This is the way markets are structured to behave. And the job of the people running a publicly traded company or even some nonprofits such as Maine Medical Center are simply doing what they should be, what they were hired to do. In the case of the publicly traded companies, the only thing they should be doing is emphasizing return on investment because the investors invest in these companies because they want the stock to appreciate. Their focus is on return on investment. If they don't do that, they're out of business. doesn't matter if they provide good medical care or cover people or whatever. They have to do what it takes to maximize their return. And the least powerful stakeholders, as we call call them, in the system 
are the patients. Patients have no power, but doctors have some power, and the, certainly the corporations have a lot of power, but patients basically do what they're told. This led me to believe that the American system resembles less a healthcare system than it resembles extortion racket. Now, let's unpack that term. It's yeah, that's kind of strong. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I believe I would describe it as the largest and most successful extortion racket ever invented. It's all legal. People are all doing what they're supposed to. But the idea of having a market-based system is stupid. I was having dinner oh, a year or so ago with a French friend of mine. I, we were talking about the American healthcare systems. And he said, you know, Philippe, the problem with you Americans is that you're suckers. You're suckers because you fall for these schemes that nobody else in the world believes will work. But there it is in full flower and full bloom in the American healthcare system. Who put the fox in charge of the chicken coop in this case? Well, it was the United States Congress. That's who did it, and that's who has to fix it. But it's very hard to do. What are the barriers to change in the American healthcare system? I mean, why is it so hard to do what every other wealthy country has done and done more successfully than we do? Are we stupider than other people? Are we more corrupt? Are we more naive? Are we more apathetic? I think a lot of it goes back to American culture and the knee-jerk resistance to taxes and the denigration of the capabilities of government. I mean, that's as American as apple pie. Government is bad. Small government is better than big government. And taxes are always bad. Except we sort of like what we get when we pay taxes. We get a government. We get public roads. We get public libraries. We get public education. So forth and so on. And there's terrific uh, resistance on the healthcare system the same way. I grew up thinking tax burden was one word. Right? Now think about that. We don't think of taxes as investments, which is the way I tend to think of them. Most people believe taxes are burdensome. And the less burden you have, the better off you are. So this is for the resistance to turning the healthcare system over to the government to at least finance is deeply better in American culture. And that's why it's so hard to change. Do you think that changing the terminology that you just described would actually have an impact? In other words, if over time we could in Maine or in the whole country change the discussion to say that financing medical care in the future would be seen as an investment that is made by the American people as opposed to a tax burden on the American people. Do you think that that would actually make it more possible to well, change it? The people who want to preserve the status quo must believe that language makes a difference. I'm old enough to remember when doctors were called doctors and nurses were called nurses and so on and so forth. We're now called stakeholders or providers. Services are now product lines. What we used to think of as a population to cover, to provide medical care to, are now market share. And that began in the early 1980s. 
And I watch this terminology change over time. And I think it's, in, it's, it's a way of keep personalizing the people involved. Patients are not consumers. They're just out there buying, like buying a television set or a car. And that you know. change was done by people who were promoting patients' rights, who wanted to see them as buying into the whole process and people as see who are providing services as being more of someone that they hired. That was yes. thought to be like a liberating kind of concept. Can I ask a quick follow-up question before we move too far from what you said a little while ago about the fox in the hen house? Who in that example that you gave is the fox and who are the hens or the chickens? Because the American public, they have distrust for providers of, on all levels, doctors, nurses, any healthcare providers. I think the level of distrust now is probably, Absolutely. since the pandemic, higher than it's ever been. And they tend to distrust the government but you don't hear as much about them distrusting the insurance companies. And I'm assuming that in your example, the insurance companies are the foxes, but maybe I'm wrong. So I just wanted to check back with you about that. Any corporation in the healthcare field that that's part of the, what's now called the medical industrial complex is focused on profit. They have to be. That's their job. And they're not doing anything from that point of view that's wrong. What people don't understand is the amount of discretionary decision-making in healthcare. We physicians have a lot of discretion about what we call diseases, how we treatment, how intensively we wish to treatment, so on and so forth. I mean, I spent a good chunk of my professional life working at, at Dartmouth with the people studying medical practice patterns with a researcher named Jack Winberg, who's pretty well known in the health policy arena. People think, you know, if you go to two or three or four doctors, they're all going to do the same thing. But that's not true. There's tremendous variation based upon the doctor's specialty, their training, their clinical experience. The difference in rates of tonsillectomies were fourfold among from the highest to the lowest market area for, for hospitals. It depended upon how your chances of having your tonsils out depend upon what hospital you go to. That's what most people don't understand. So when you introduce economic incentives and you're a doctor and you work for a hospital and the hospital encourages you, first of all, the electronic medical record system suggests ways to code the symptoms and the signs you put, you put into the system. The CFO or the chief information officer of the hospital has bought the, the, has bought that medical record system, which is, yes, it's a clinical tool, but I can guarantee you when they bought the system, they were sold on the system on the basis of we can increase your profitable revenue. For example, Main General Hospital in Augusta, uh, a couple of years ago discontinued their diabetes, their diabetes clinic. Now that's a non-profit hospital, as are all hospitals in Maine. And the reason they gave for discontinuing the diabetes clinic is that it was unprofitable. So the corporate mentality, the business mentality, has seeped deeply into the nonprofit culture. And, and the CFO is judged on the basis of keeping the hospital fiscally sound. That's how he's evaluated. And the chief medical officer in Augusta, in Bangor, two years ago, in the seminar I attended, was asked, how are the doctors who are now employees of the hospital, Eastern Maine Medical Center, how are you evaluated? And he answered, how by how much revenue we bring in? 
How does it strike you to realize that your heart surgeon works for a hedge fund? So the Foxes are the administration, the business interests that own and the managers that control how services are provided? The Fox is the belief that healthcare is just another business. The whole idea of healthcare as a business. I mean, people in other countries think we're crazy. You know, you go to a hospital that's run like a business. I want a hospital that's run by the doctors. That's the problem. And you can see how deeply embedded in our culture this is. I was uh, on a committee recently to write a, a report about the future of Medicare. And I tried to purge the terms consumer, provider, market share, product line, blah, 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 from the report. And this was a report by a very prestigious nonprofit think tank. It was a National Academy for Social Insurance. And I'm a member of that organization. I was a founding member of it. And I can guarantee you that the guy who started that organization, Robert Ball, who was Social Security Commissioner, who's passed away a number of years ago, rolling over in his grave to see what's happened. And I was unable to get those terms taken out of the report. And that's the problem. That's one of the barriers to change. You think that there's any difference in Maine than in other parts of the country. You mentioned, for example, that all the hospitals in Maine are run by nonprofit organizations, at least in name. Do you think that the system that you said is going to crash and burn will crash and burn in Maine later? Or is it something that Maine doesn't really have much to say about, that it's really an overall national system? So that as we try to look ahead about what life in Maine might be in the future. In this particular case, we're going to be seeing the same thing that anybody else in the country sees. Well, I think there's hope for Maine. I mean, I think Maine is better off than most states, as are all of the other northeastern states. But try to talk about change. Go down to Florida or Southern California or Texas and try to persuade them that they have to make fundamental changes. I mean, I'm, I'm also on a medical society, Maine Medical Association Committee, to update their health policy position. And we have a committee of about 20 people, all members or staff of the medical association, who are working to modernize their policy statement. The policy statement that came out of the committee and is going to the board, which has to approve it, recognizes that a single-payer, publicly financed, privately delivered system is the best result. And that is a, a big step forward. Why don't we have a national health program in this country? The AMA is the leading obstacle. They've been the most effective antagonist to the idea of a government-financed system. And this is very, very well documented. That's just not my opining on something. Uh, a a uh, political scientist named Peter Swenson at Yale has just published a book called Disorder, 800 pages of careful documentation of the role of the American Medical Association in stopping health care reform in this country. And this has been going on for over 100 years. It goes back to the Teddy Roosevelt administration, and then FDR, and then Truman, and then Kennedy. And then Clinton, and finally Obama, 
got something done. That's how far back this goes. It's interesting because I'm assuming that the Maine Medical Association is probably affiliated with the AMA in some way. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. yeah. And do you know whether there are other states that are proposing uh, similar ideas? There's an organization called One Payer States, and it has 22 members, and they're all working on a single-payer type system in their states. In fact, the Oregon is probably the furthest along. New York is pretty close behind, but Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, I mean, Massachusetts just had a ballot initiative, I guess at a congressional district level, and it passed in every level where it was on the ballot. The public is behind us, but, you know, the big corporations are making tons of money. If you want to know where all the money's going, we're almost double or more than double the costs in other countries to look at Wall Street. Wall Street is getting a lot of that money. Does Maine realistically have any chance to break out of the system and do anything on our own? Is there really a way that any state could go to a single-payer plan without the rest of the country or at least a region being on board with it? Yeah. I mean, that's what Maine All Care is working on. And it's our belief that the the, uh, legislative authority at a federal level already exists to do what we're proposing to do by sort of collapsing all of the sources of funding in, into a single pool. You know, the, the fundamental business of insurance is to price risk. That's what they do. They decide how they insure something. They decide how risky it is. That is, how likely is it that a claim will be made, and they price this premium using that technique. In fact, the largest department in any insurance company is the underwriting department. They have actuaries just trying to figure out how much should we charge this customer for an insurance policy for whatever they want to cover. The ACA, the Affordable Care Act, has a provision in it that allows the Secretary of HHS at a federal level to grant states waivers to create such a system. And that's one of the things we've proposed, to create a state system that will fill in the gaps provide better coverage for Medicare, and so on. And we think that is technically feasible. We think the obstacles are almost 100% political. Barriers to change are mostly cultural and political. So I, I conducted a uh, panel discussion about five years ago for the National Academy of Social Insurance with sort of an all-star list of health policy experts. And my charge to them was to identify the barriers to change. And most of them came up with purely cultural barriers. There was uh, apathy. We have less social solidarity than many countries do. Fear and anger. Fear that somebody will lose something, such as their income, if we go to a government-based system. I mean, that's most of the doctors are afraid of that, quite frankly. When we broach this idea to practicing doctors, they say, well, we can't go to Medicare for all uh, because uh, they don't pay enough. We can't cover our expenses with the Medicare payments. And I have to point out to them that the essence of Medicare is not what they pay. I mean, that's a, a detail. It's a very important detail to the doctors, but that's a detail. 
the core of Medicare is that it's a public good, and its fundamental mission is to facilitate access to medical care. And when you put an insurance company or a pharmaceutical company or a medical device company in charge of a big piece of the politics of that, their mission is to maximize return on investment. And that's what they should be doing. The problem is it often clashes with what the doctors think ought to be done and our notions of quality medical care. And that's why it's necessary to change the fundamentals of the system, not just control the price against insulin or this, that, or the next thing. I mean, that's a step forward, but it can also be a step backward because the politicians can then point to that and say, you know, we're doing something. It'll just five more years, it'll work. The analogy I like to use is, you know, you have a house with a foundation and the foundation is built on quicksand and the foundation keeps shifting. And the reason you know the foundation, something's happening, is you're getting cracks in the walls, leaks in the roof, the electrical system is shorting out, and so on. You keep patching up the cracks in the wall and so on, and somehow doesn't cure the problem. And that's because we, in that case, the foundation is the problem. And until you fix the foundation, you're going to continue to have the signs and symptoms that you can see. And the healthcare system is very, Similar to that, we build a healthcare system based upon market principles, about consumer choice, and about competition. And that's just doesn't work in healthcare. As politicians like to do, they like to think we can just tweak this a little bit and everything will get better. But they're afraid to attack the foundation, which is putting for-profit investor-owned uh, interests in charge of the healthcare system. And until they get that right, it's not going to be fixed. The high costs, the bad access, the mediocre quality, and so on, are the symptoms. And as a physician, I was taught if you want to cure the disease, accurately diagnose the underlying pathology and treat that. Okay, and the signs and symptoms will then take care of themselves. And that's where we are now in healthcare. Let me finish my list of cultural apathy. Fear, anger, ignorance about how the healthcare system works, ideology, you know, markets solve all problems, and finally, good old capitalist greed. And I'm not saying greed as a pejorative. I mean, I'm with Michael Douglas on this one. Greed is good from the point of view of a capitalist. Greed, greed means you maximize return on investment. And that's what capitalists like to do. From their point of view, they're just doing their jobs. And that's why we have to address the underlying pathology and be honest about it. And we're not going to fix this system until we do that. That was Dr. Phil Caper of Maine All Care. For more on the future of health care and health insurance here in Maine, check out the September edition of Maine The Way Life Could Be on the WERU archives at WERU.org. Dr. Caper was the final guest on this final edition in the year-long series, Maine The Way Life Could Be, here on WERU-FM. Jim Campbell, it's been great working with you for the past years. First time we've done a project like this together, and it was a really interesting one. It took us a lot of places. Was there anything in particular that sticks with you or that you learned or that you weren't expecting from all of these different things that we covered? 
I thought that it was really useful to talk with people of different ages. We keep saying it's the lifetime of those alive in Maine. People who are seniors and people who are in high school have very different forward-looking purviews. One of the things that really stuck with me was talking with younger people of high school age and having several of them say that I and my friends have decided not to have children because we really are concerned about what climate change is going to do with the world that they would be living in. Maybe not the day they were born, but certainly through their lifetimes. That really took a bit of the air out of my system when I heard that. It's really interesting to see how younger people, at least some younger people, are looking ahead and taking seriously the effects of climate change and the repercussions of those effects. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, hearing that perspective and the fact that they're feeling like their choices of what they want to do in the future, including where to live and jobs and all of that, are limited. In the environmental movement, there have always been some who've said having less kids or validating the choice to not have kids is a good thing in terms of the environment among Americans because we're such big consumers. But at this point, and specifically looking at Maine, the state's in trouble. <laughs> we need more young people here. And one of the things that really stuck out for me was the state demographers' reports are highlighting the fact that we need more young people in the state as the older people are aging out of jobs. People who grew up here, and I can relate to this, have a very hard time living in their hometowns in some places too, just because it's become unaffordable. So all of these things become interconnected. There's a lot of challenges, and that, of course, was the point of this program. One of the things that has become more apparent to me is that in some cases, those challenges are really pretty significant. One of the things that I learned is that we need to really be paying attention decades down the road, or when we get there, we may have some surprises that are not at all attractive. A way that Maine can get around that is by having more people move in. Having more people move in has been exacerbating the housing crisis when you talk about very wealthy people moving to the coast and buying up the housing stock. On the other hand, when you talk about younger families moving here from other places, including other countries, and having children, those kids are the kids of the future that will be filling these jobs that older folks are retiring from. That population, while there are some in our state who are very discouraging of us having refugee resettlement programs and things like that here in the state, could be vital for our success in the future. And the whole dynamic, not being friendly necessarily to people from away or taking a while to warm up, there's a message there that these people are not only not your enemy, but they may be your salvation that I think is going to possibly come out in future programs. The other thing for me was that climate change permeates everything. It came up in nearly every talk that we had. Scientists and activists have had to contend with climate change denial and corporate power and greed for many, many years now as they've been trying to warn the public about this. But now that climate change is quite literally showing up in people's backyards in this form of all these horrible storms, invasive species, 
chicks gone wild. It's getting really hard for people to deny. It's hard to tell how much can be done about it right now. But I think we'll be doing a lot more reporting on that. And another place I'd like to direct listeners to for alternatives and policy conversations here on WERU is Steve Call's program, Power for the People, because that's what he covers every month on the 4th Wednesday of each month at 4 o'clock. For the first time in, I think, about two decades, Maine actually had a slight population growth in the last two years. And that was due to what some people are referring to as COVID refugees and climate change refugees. For almost 20 years, deaths have outnumbered births in Maine, and they still do. And so the only possibility that we seem to have right now is, as you said, people moving in, not so much because we want to have more people around, but because we want to have people who can do the jobs that need to be done every day. And with an aging population, the oldest state in the country, we're going to need more people to be helping those elderly people so that they can carry on their their lives. So a lot is in flux. There's a lot of opportunity out there. My last thought as we wrap up the series is that all of our volunteer news and public affairs programmers are really well suited and already on the ground covering almost every single topic that was mentioned by people who came to our listening session as being important to Maine in the future, in the lifetime of those of us alive today. And I'm not saying this as, you know, an ad for our programming, but Truly, we have some great people who are experts in the subjects, inviting other local experts in the subject, and sometimes national and international experts, to talk about these topics and getting the community involved. And as they've been doing that, it's just evident that there's so much happening out there in the community. There really is a lot of focus on this and and hope and, and optimism. That's one of the things we heard. We heard, despite very difficult times. We heard optimism from many people. That gives us a little bit of hope as we wind up this series. This series has been supported by the Maine Arts Commission, and we appreciate that. Time to say goodbye. I'm Jim Campbell. I'm Amy Brown, and thanks to Matt Murphy, Ann Luther, and others who advised us as we got started with this series. Thank you, Jim Campbell. It's been great working with you. And thank you. And good night. (laughs) (laughs) That's a wrap. Keep it tuned here to WERU-FM, Community Radio, 89.9 FM in Blue Hill.